Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Thank you, Reverend Kim Landrum. You may be seated. I want to refresh your memory a bit about where we're at in the book of Acts. Uh, you probably know this, but uh, just by way of review, uh, Jesus has come. He's lived a perfect life. He's died on the cross. He's been resurrected on the third day. He gave his disciples, who he'll, we'll now call his apostles, his sent ones. That's what the word apostle means. He'll give his apostles instructions and tell them that they will be his Witnesses, witnesses of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, the main seat of the Jewish faith, the capital, if you will, in Judea, the area around Jerusalem, in Samaria, the region to the north of Judea, and to the ends of the earth, which is, you know, everywhere else. And, and, that's, and that is beginning to happen. The Holy Spirit has also come, and, and after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost and filled the people filled uh, the followers of Jesus Christ with his spirit, and they are now uh, proclaiming and performing signs and wonders and teaching about Jesus. They're already, they've already encountered a little bit of resistance, and, and uh, that's gone okay. And uh, now they, as of last week, they're starting to even add a little bit of structure to the system, right? There's widows that were being neglected in the distribution, and so the the apostles appoint, uh, the apostles work together with the other believers and they, they find out that there's seven, they, they appoint seven men to the role of, of meeting this need, this physical need within the church, uh, so that they can devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. That's what we covered last week. And so there's a, the church is this, this fledgling thing. It's just this, this small but growing number perhaps thousands in number by this point, but it's, it's small, relatively speaking, and growing in number. And there's going to be, we're going to see conflict this week and next week. And that conflict is between this new fledgling church that's just beginning to add a little bit of structure with the Jewish faith, which has in Jerusalem the temple, which has a system of training up men to be priests, training them in the in the Old Testament law, schools established to make that happen, rabbis uh, performing their duties to train uh, these men for this, for this purpose, all kinds of attendance. And, and there's a trade set up even in the temple. Jesus, you know, 
fashioned a whip and drove them out. But, but that trade is probably still there that's pre, uh, selling animals to sacrifice for your atonement, right? So, uh, you know, yeah, get your spotless lamb, get it right here, you know. Uh, not only that, but scattered across the, the, the nation of Israel are a series of synagogues in all these towns where there are rabbis there to teach the Torah, teach the Old Testament law, teach the prophets to the people. In other words, you've got this little fledgling church going up against this great big institution, this institution that the world knows about, this institution that has a relationship, albeit a broken one, but a, a relationship with the Roman Empire and the Roman governors and all this. They know each other. They, they exist together. They understand how the system works. And here's this new fledgling church coming up, and there's conflict. And we're going to learn some things today about what God can do with our lives when it comes to dealing with some of these institutions, these powerful structures. And that's really the big question for today. What can one person do, right? We, this is uh, a question that I know I ask myself all the time. What can I do with all the stuff that's going on and all the, the, uh, the larger institutions out there that are uh, making poor decisions? What can one person do about the powerful structures of the institutions of this world? And here we're mainly talking about uh, this new fledgling church going up against the Old Testament Jewish religious system. Today we're going to be talking about Stephen. Uh, pastor Kim read the, met, read the uh, he's a retired pastor from Laporte, if you don't know Reverend Kim yet. But uh, he, he uh, read the scripture today about Stephen. And so we're going to look at Stephen today, and we're going to look at him more next week. But Stephen appears at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, and, and he, um, he appears at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, and by the end of Acts chapter 7, he's gone. He's, he's dead. And so for those of you in, uh, familiar with the Star Trek, uh, he's a red shirt. Uh, if you know anything about the original Star Trek series, if, if you beam down to the planet's surface and you've got a red shirt on, you're not going to make it. Okay. Now, we know more about Stephen than we do a tip, about a typical red shirt guy, on, uh, a person on Star Trek. But, um, but he, he's, not very much, he's not mentioned for very long in the Bible before he is gone. But he has a very critical role in helping us to understand uh, our lives. Let's talk about Stephen a little bit. First of all, he's not an apostle. We covered this last week. He is, in fact, what we would call a deacon. He's a servant. He's been given the post... Uh, along with six other guys, to manage this distribution program for the widows, both the Greek-speaking and the Hebrew, uh, the Jewish widows that are Christians. And he's, he's presumably doing okay with that. But I want you to just note that Stephen is not confining himself to those responsibilities. He's also uh, presumably out there preaching and teaching the Word, and God is doing some miraculous signs and wonders through him. He's described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's being filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. Um, now, faith, as we've covered before, faith means knowledge. He knows about Jesus. Assent, he believes in Jesus. And then trust. And that third point, a lot of folks, I think, make it to point one and point two. We know about Jesus. We trust in, or we, we believe that what about, we believe what we know about Jesus is true. But trust Eh, fewer of us can get there, right? That means to place 
the weight of your life on what Jesus has said, to live it out. Stephen is a man full of faith. He's living it out. And he is also full of the Holy Spirit. Now, lest we just gloss past that statement, uh, let's just take a pause and, and, and meditate on that for just a minute. The Bible tells us that as we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. Think about that for just a minute. In the Old Testament, God manifested himself. He manifested his presence by manifesting you know, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of spoke, smoke over the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, which was a more permanent version of the tabernacle. That's how God manifested his presence. But after Jesus died and resurrected, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was unleashed, and now, and now God actually takes up residence in the lives of his people, you and I. God, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God is present in your life. He has taken up residence in your life in the person of the Holy Spirit, and that has all kinds of glorious ramifications. First of all, obviously, your sins are forgiven. You know, your place with God is secure eternally. But now the Holy Spirit is, is prompting you, right, to, to prick your conscience when you've done something against what God has said. The Holy Spirit is active in your life, is not letting you rest until you, until you are, are reading God's Word and, and, and uh, praying. And, and we can quench the Holy Spirit. The Bible makes that very clear. But the Holy Spirit taking up residence in our life is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Stephen is described as that kind of man. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, last week's passage says, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 10, which is later in our passage this morning, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So he was a, he was a faithful man. He had the Holy Spirit in his life. And he was wise. He was living skillfully. All right? It also says that he was full of grace and power, right? He was full, he was full of grace and power. Right? This takes me back to John chapter 1, verse 14, when John tells us that Jesus came, Jesus came full of truth and grace, right? Full of truth and grace. Uh, he, he was going to tell us the way life really was, the truth, but he was also going to do so in such a way uh, that we did not deserve, in, in, in a way that was very gracious, and here we see Stephen. And I find, I, this is the, just the way the connection is that my brain works. What I see in Stephen as we go through this passage is I see, well, both this week and next week, a man who is going to, who's so filled with the Holy Spirit that he's going to travel kind of a similar road that Jesus did. Jesus simply spoke the truth. He was persecuted for it, and he was killed for it. He worked signs and wonders. Stephen is a man full of the Holy Spirit. He's going to He's, going to, he's working signs and wonders, we see that, and he's, he's also going to just speak the truth, and they're going, to, they're going to malign him, and they're going to kill him for it. He also is performing signs and wonders, and again, my understanding of signs and wonders, and my understanding may be imperfect, but when you see someone performing signs and wonders, oftentimes that points to the fact that this is God's person. This is God's spokesperson. You can trust what they have to say. Um, 
and there's more that could be said on that, but I'm not going to spend time on that this morning. The point of this first, the first, this first uh, verse eight, I think, is to is to point us in this direction. Stephen is like one of us, right? We're, we're like Stephen. We're not an apostle. We're just a servant, you know, doing our thing. And we are, if we have followed Jesus, made him the savior, or trusted him as savior of our from our sin, and and of and are recognizing him as Lord of our lives, then God can do things through us too, according to the way that he's made us and given us ability. Perfectly? No. Stephen's not Jesus, not at all. Um, but can this be done effectively? Absolutely. So we see the man. The next thing we see is the message. In verses 9 and 10, we read this, and some of those who belonged to the synagogue of, synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, they were, from, they were Cyrenians and Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. We'll talk more about the synagogue of the freedmen in the next point, but let's just suffice it to say that, that there was a dispute. That's okay. That's okay. There's an argument. Stephen is proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the Jewish Messiah that they were waiting for, that that person has come, and his name is Jesus. And in his death, burial, and resurrection, you know, you know the rest of the story. He's taken away our sins for those that would believe. And, and Stephen is proclaiming this stuff. And the Jews are still stuck in their way of thinking, which is, that the Messiah would come and deliver them from all their enemies and reestablish the kingdom and even sit on the throne as, as an earthly king. And so did not believe what Stephen was saying. So I imagine that some of those disputes went maybe something like this. Stephen, 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 don't you understand? This couldn't have been the Christ. This couldn't have been the Messiah. Not sitting on the throne. Not ruling from Jerusalem. I mean... Look at the Davidic covenant, you know, I mean, David, God promised David a king and a kingdom forever. I understand this guy was from the line of David. We know that. But his birth is a little bit illegitimate, if you know what I mean. There's some, there's some, it's kind of sketchy. And then not only that, but, you know, he spent his whole life working outside the system, not, you know, you know, talking bad about Pharisees and Sadducees and all this stuff. This guy can't be the Christ. You say he's resurrected and ascended. Yeah, right, you know, whatever. I know you've got all kinds of witnesses, but we're not going to believe that. And Stephen's going, listen, go back and reread the prophets. Go back and reread the Psalms. Learn about the suffering servant, right? The one that would come and take away all of our sin and make us whiter than stone. Go back and read those sections of your, of your book, of your Bible. You're going to find this out in all this kind of, these these arguments going on. Stephen, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, because he had great wisdom, he argued with them in a such a way that they could not withstand him. They would raise a point, and he would bring a counterpoint that was very satisfying and explanatory and good. They couldn't stand up against him. You can, you can I don't know, in my mind's eye, I see them getting more and more frustrated Again, Stephen was filled with wisdom and the Spirit. Now, why? Why is what's about to happen? We've already read the text. You know what's going to happen. They're going to start maligning him. 
and making up false testimony against him. Why? Well, that brings us to our third point, which I'm going to call the machine. The machine. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those of, from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, if you know anything about Judaism, these guys have attributed to Stephen all five pillars of things you don't say against Judaism. They've attacked God, they've attacked Moses, they've attacked the law, they've attacked the temple, and they've attacked the customs, the traditions. All five. They have maligned Stephen on all five of those big five pillars that, you know, that, that the Jewish faith in those days was, was considered, those things were considered sacred. You don't violate the temple. You don't besmirch God. When we, when we write out his name, we don't even write it out all the way because we have such reverence of God. Now, what do I mean by the machine? Well, let me, let me try to illustrate before I get too far into this. When cars came on the scene, automobiles came on the scene years ago, what were people using to, to, to be transported before cars? Horses, right? So these cars came out and they need stuff, right? They need oil, they need gas, fuel. And so I'm guessing that the naysayers said, listen, I can just let my horse in the backyard. It's going to eat the grass. I'm going to give, give the horse a little bit of hay, a little bit of corn. Corn grows in the back 40, you know. I'm just going to give my, you know, horse some hay, some water, some, some uh, corn, I've got reliable transportation. Who, we don't even have a system set up to provide fuel to these cars. Where are you going to get this stuff? Well, that changed, right? Now, I mean, how many spaces, how many, I bet, I bet you you couldn't even quickly count how many places in town, in Delaware, you can go to fuel your car. And uh, a whole industry has arisen out of that, right? Uh, if, if I go down to Sheets... I can pull in, I can get premium gas, I can get regular gas, I can get that 88 stuff that's cheaper, I can get diesel, right? I can get all kinds of stuff. I can air up my tires, and I can go in to Sheets and get a delicious cup of coffee and a Danish. It's wonderful. It's a whole experience, right? Well, guess what? Things are changing. Here comes electric cars. And what do people say? People say, okay, you got 300-mile range on that thing. Where are you going to charge it? There's no charging stations around you. There's not enough of these charging stations. Look, we have a whole system set up to go over here. Some geologist is going to figure out where there's oil under this dirt, right? We're going to drill down into that dirt. We're going to suck the oil out of there, the crude oil. 
and then we're going to send it somewhere. There's a whole team of scientists and engineers and workers over here that are going to refine that into fuel. Then we're going to put it on trains and trucks and get it out to these gas stations where there's Danish and coffee, right? And everybody's going to love it. We don't want these electric cars. And then you go down to Polaris area and you find that there's a Tesla charging station. And you also learn that you can, when you buy one of these cars, you can have one of these charging stations installed in your very own garage. In other words, you can pull your car into your garage, you can take a cable off the wall, you can open up a little, little door on the side of your car, stick it in there, go to bed at night, and it's charging. Times are changing, but it takes time because these, these processes, these structures that we have in place are huge, and it's going to take time to make that shift. Well, here's what, we're, here's what we're up against here, or here's what Stephen's up against. This, the fledgling church is just getting started, and it's up against a system, the temple, these places that priests train, that, that, that uh, rabbis train to learn the Old Testament law, the synagogues. Their understanding of life is pretty fixed and has been for hundreds, nay, thousands of years. Their understanding of life has been pretty fixed. And here comes the church. A few thousand people, 12 apostles, some deacons. What's going to happen? Now, let's talk about the synagogue of the freedmen. I had to do a bit of research on this, and I, 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 I came up with some, some information for you. Observation number one is that this synagogue is called this, and it's probably a synagogue, maybe two, in Jerusalem at the time of the writing here. This synagogue is made up of a group of Jewish people who, at some point in the past, had been put into slavery by a Roman emperor and been dispersed a bit. And while they were, while they or their ancestors were serving out this time in slavery, they really were brought up in that culture, and so they spoke Greek. And at the time that this is all being written, there is a Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so when they are eventually released from slavery, they or their ancestors, I believe maybe a generation or two re removed from that release, when they are released from their slavery, they, they regather into communities of Jewish people, and, but they speak Greek. And so they form their own synagogues. Instead of Hebrew synagogues, they form these other synagogues, and they call them the synagogue of the freedmen. And the King James, I think it's the, the freedmen of the libertines, okay? And then it starts to list where some of these folks are from. And two of the locations are south of Israel and Africa, one in Egypt, one in modern-day Libya. And two of the locations listed are north of Israel, one in modern-day Turkey, and one north of Syria. That's what's referred to as Cilicia, the main city of the region of Cilicia is Tarsus. And if you can put two and two together, it's very possible that Saul of Tarsus, who will later be known as the Apostle Paul, is from that region and very well may have been part of the synagogue of the freedmen. Don't know that for sure, but if you put two and two together, it seems to make some sense. Saul of Tarsus, he's going to appear in chapter 7. Observation number two, and this is just me speaking. Uh, I don't know. This is not in the text. This is me just making an observation about life. My grandparents went through the Great Depression in the United States. They went through a very difficult time. 
and it shaped them. My, my grandparents were very frugal and conservative people. Good people, but very frugal. Uh, I remember them, um, you know, for Christmas sometimes, uh, they would get me like a, 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 an orange and a bag of nuts. And they thought that was amazing. And I'm like, where's my Star Wars action figures? <laughs> but they lived through a time of scarcity, of great scarcity. And to them, those things were treats that were not normal. And so... Um, what I'm saying is, is that my second observation is that people that endure hard times tend to present as more conservative. And I wonder, I just wonder, that if, if Saul of Tarsus is part of this synagogue of the freedmen, and if in their rearview mirror, earlier in their lives or in the previous generation, there, were, there was slavery, they, there was captivity, and it was oppressive, that the, the end result of that would have been that 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 group of people in the synagogue of the freedmen weren't just Jews. They were pretty strict and ardent conservative Jews. And they, wanted, they were passionate that, that the people of Israel maintain fidelity to the Old Testament law. They may have, may have been a bit overzealous. Observation number three, it's ironic, I think, this is just Scott's brain, but uh, it's ironic that the descendants of freed slaves are somehow still in slavery to the Mosaic law to the point where they reject Jesus as the Christ. Anyway, that's just my observation. So you've got the synagogue of the freedmen, and they're really, really wanting to dispute with Stephen. And they use three tactics, and we're going to talk about those now. They use The first tactic is, is fine. They argue. And I, we talked about that. They're having a dispute, talking about what's going on and what's this all about and whatever. And, and as a, by way of illustration, uh, you know, I, I want you just to think this morning about words as being like this hammer. This hammer is just a tool, right? And anybody that works with tools knows you can use tools to destroy things. And I can walk over to that wall and I can just start popping holes in it, right? I, behind the drywall is brick, so I'm not going to get too far. But maybe better just to bust out some windows, right? I can just go over and start busting out some windows. Or I can use this hammer to construct a new wall or a new something. I can build something with it. And words are very much like tools. You can use words. I think this is very consistent with Scripture. You can use your words to edify, to build people up, to point them to the truth. Or you can use your words to destroy. I mean, the Bible talks about the tongue as a consuming fire. Once you unleash bad stuff, bile, out of your mouth, it can consume like a fire. Argue, arguing about a point, arguing with Stephen about what's going on and what his understanding of Scripture and his understanding of who Jesus is, that's all good stuff. But it, something happened. At the end of that conversation, they could not withstand him, and they were so committed to their Old Testament law system, and they are so committed to the structure that, that, that was in place that they resorted to another tactic, which was to take their words and to use them to destroy. Stephen is in our way. Stephen is proclaiming something that we don't believe in. Stephen is, is 
in their minds, lying to all these people and pointing them away from what we have in place. And so we will slander him. We will put, we will attribute to him, we will lie and attribute to him things that he said that he never said. Now, here's what the key point I think is of this. This is something that we should take away from this text. What they're about to do violates their very own law. The tactics that these Jewish men are about to employ against Stephen violate the very thing that they hold so dear. Let me flesh that out just a bit. Here's a bunch of scriptures. I'm going to put them up one at a time. You don't worry about, yeah, I'm just going to do it one at a time. Not in some obscure portion of the Old Testament law, like where it talks about, you know, you, you can't sew dissimilar fabrics together or, or weave dissimilar threads together. Not in some obscure part of the law. In the Ten Commandments. Like, that's the... When you make Ten Commandments, you you want them to be memorable, right? In one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What are they about to do? What are they doing in the text? They're bearing false witness against Stephen. The text makes that clear. In, In other places in the law, if a malicious witness... Uh, arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord and before the priests and judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then it goes on to describe the consequences of that. God is pretty, God is pretty adamant that he wants us to speak the, use our words to speak truth. Truth. When we, when we unleash a lie into the, when a lie leaves our lips, we, we can't control it. Who's going to overhear it? Who's going to pass it from one person to the next? Uh, how far is the reputational damage of the person that we're lying against going to spread? We, d- we don't know. That's why it's called, a con- it's like the tongue is like a fire, consumes. And so we ought to be careful brothers and sisters, how we use our words. If this weren't enough, Psalm 101 verse 5 says this. I mean, this is God's attitude about the subject. Whoever slanders his neighborly secretly, I will destroy. I know what nuance is. This is not nuance. God is very just black and white about this. When we speak with our words about each other, we need to do so truthfully. And when in doubt, leave it out. That's a takeoff of the, uh, the old college saying that I learned at Purdue, when in doubt, look about. Nah, you know, taking, when taking a test, when in doubt, look about. <laughs> no, when in doubt, leave it out. Now, what, what what Stephen is being accused of here about the whole thing about destroy this temple, and, and again, I will raise it in three days, is the same thing that they held against Jesus, like he was going to destroy the temple. But that's not what Jesus said. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said this, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, first of all, he's not saying, I'm going to destroy the temple. He's like, if you destroy this temple, and he's not even talking about the temple that, in Jerusalem, he's talking metaphorically about himself which they did destroy, and which he did rise up after three days. So these guys, these Jewish folks, are 
maligning. They've already used the same data to malign Jesus, and now they're using the same data to malign Stephen. So they're slandering him. And tactic number three is force. And we've already seen that. We'll see it more next week. They arrest him and bring him by force into the Sanhedrin, the council. Now, again, this is just, why is this all happening? There's power and structure here, right? To, to, to believe what Stephen is saying means that Moses, their understanding of Moses, their understanding of the temple, their understanding of the law and the customs, it's all got to shift now. If we go with what Stephen, the implications are absolutely huge. If we go with what Stephen has said, it's going to change everything about our worldview, and they just don't seem willing to go there, despite what they've seen, despite what they've heard, despite the testimony, despite the signs and wonders that Stephen himself is, are, is working on the earth. Now, it's just interesting, before this text, in three different spots, in Acts 4.21, Acts 5.13, Acts 5.26, it's pretty clear that the, the disciples, the, the apostles, are enjoying favor with the people. They're enjoying, in other words, the people, the people of Israel are respectful and like what's going on. But let me just tell you this. You think about this in our own culture today. Um, if, if um, you, you know, let's just take the United States, for example. If, if you and I latch onto an idea and think, boy, that would be a really good idea, or, or, or that's the way something happened or whatever. But then we come to find out that the president, the vice president, the Senate, the House, the FBI, the CIA, the Supreme Court all says something different. You see what the weight of that would start to do to you? You'd be, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. And so here's Stephen, one man, standing up against their understanding of Moses. Jesus is a fulfillment of the things Moses said. The temple. The temple, yeah, the temple, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Christ. And so now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has taken up residence, not manifesting himself as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night over the Holy of Holies, but now he has taken up residence in the lives of his people. We're like living stones, Ephesians talks about, that build something better than the temple. It changes everything. They can't take it. They won't have it. And can I just say this before we move to our last point? If your institution which so stridently holds to the idea that it is forbidden to bear false witness, forbidden to slander. If your institution then will turn and resort to those very tactics to move someone out of the way that you can't argue against, you are in big trouble. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're using unbiblical what God has forbidden tactics to try to discredit and get rid of Stephen. What they don't understand is that they're, they're bringing the hammer down on a spark that's going to spread throughout the world. Last thing, the mindset. 
the mindset. Uh, this is verse 15. And if you're like me and you have a sense of humor, you've got to ask yourself, Lord, why is verse 15 in the Bible? And gazing at him, all who sat at the council saw that, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Okay, what does that mean? Let's be serious here for a minute. What does that mean? Here's my thoughts. Stephen had been lied about, arrested, and is now before the Sanhedrin. His facial expression is not exactly what you would expect from a person in this situation. When I think of the face of an angel, I think of a person who's, who's at peace and filled with confidence. I'm the Lord's man, and I'm not worried. You would expect, I don't know, if I was dragged in for, you know, if somebody trumped up charges against me and drug me into the authorities, I'd probably have an angry face. Ugh, what do you guys, don't you get it? I've been arrested wrongly. Come on. Go back and look at what I said. Ask anybody. Get some witnesses in here. Or perhaps a frightened face or a, perhaps a scared face. So unusual, though, was his facial expression that it was noted by others and then recorded in Scripture. What could explain this? Now, I'm, I'm just going to admit to you freely that I'm about to foray just a little bit, just humor me for a minute, into speculation. What I'm about to share with you are biblical concepts, but I can't, the, the text doesn't attribute these to Stephen. This is what I'm I'm supposing that maybe he had on his mind. Perhaps it's true that Stephen had incorporated the following concepts into his life. One, God is in control. Not me. God is in control. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So perhaps Stephen just knew that this situation that he's confronted with right now, that he's been put in this situation by God. And the temptation would be just to shut his mouth and try to plead innocent and get out of there. But the second thing he probably knew is that I belong to him. I belong to God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So maybe in his flesh he's thinking, I need to get out of here. But in his spirit, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, no, my task here is clear. I've got to bear witness. I've simply got to speak the truth to these people. That's what I'm here to do. Perhaps his mind was filled with this thought. I'm going to do what is right despite the consequences. Now, I've, I've thrown a couple of passages up here on the screen, and I'm going to go through those two very quickly here. But just, I just want you to pay careful attention as I read this passage from Luke 21. And tell me that Stephen isn't living out exactly what Jesus said before he died. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. They were not able to withstand Stephen because he was filled with wisdom and the Spirit. 
Do you see it? Luke 12, 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what you should, how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Again, I'm engaging in speculation here, but perhaps Stephen, having understood the teachings of Jesus Christ, concluded, God is in control, I belong to him, I'm going to do what's right despite the consequences, and then the one that is probably the hardest Christian concept to live out. I love my accusers. I love them. I don't want them to continue to stumble around in the dark, not understanding who Jesus was. So I'm going to, as effectively as I can, love them by telling them the truth. In other words, he wasn't harboring, perhaps, I, I don't know, he had a face of an angel, not an angry face, so I'm, I'm presuming here a bit that maybe he didn't hate his accusers, maybe he loved his accusers. Matthew 5.44 says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is one of the most powerful witnesses of the Christian faith, is that we can, with people that don't agree with us, with people who will spend their whole lives trying to promote ideas and, and lifestyles and, and concepts that would run 100% diametrically opposed to the Christian faith, that we learn to love them. That doesn't mean accept what they're saying. It means to genuinely want and work for what's best for them. And the result of all these things, in my speculation, is that Stephen somehow exhibited before this crowd such a radically different facial expression than they expected. They called it a face of an angel. I'm guessing that he had peace and confidence. That's at the end of my speculation. How does one person... How can one person make a difference against all the powerful institutions and everything in this world? What do you do when an institution will violate its, one of its core principles, will violate one of its own core principles because they can't withstand your arguments to move you out of the way and accuse you falsely? By the way, that's called corruption. What do you do? Well, the answer is, is that one, one person filled with the Holy Spirit can be a witness for Jesus while exposing the corruption of the institutions of this world that will lead to their destruction in God's timing. I keep reminding you that it's not our job to get rid of all the, corrupt, the corruption. God will do it. Our job is simply to witness. To witness with our lives, with our words, with our love, who Jesus is and what he came here to accomplish and how he told us to live in such a way that's good for us and pleasing to him. God's going to take care of the rest. And if he doesn't do it now, he'll do it when he returns. I hesitate to even put up any application uh, because... Uh, uh, I pray that the Spirit's working in your life and that you've, you've already gleaned a few things on your own. But I'm just going to do this in like two seconds. Here you go. Cultivate godliness, cultivate boldness, cultivate love and, of God and love of others. What I mean by this, those things is 
to do the work that's necessary to, to create growth in these areas. When you plant something, you cultivate the soil, you fertilize it, you, so you turn the soil over. So when you cultivate these things, it means that it's going to take some practice. It's going to, you're going to have to set the conditions. You may have to simplify your life a bit to create some space to get these things done. But I think you can fill in the blanks. You have the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity has taken up residence in your life. And that is a lot more powerful than you think it is. If you will set yourself to the mission that we've been given. God will use you. Father, do use us. We do live in a corrupt world. We see it all around us. It's, it's working its way into the church, into our society, into our government, and beyond. Father, we recognize that it's our hearts are corrupt, but Thanks be to you for sending your only son, Jesus, to die, to pay the penalty for our sin, and to give us new life, and to empower us to walk in it. Lord, there's, each one of us have gifts and abilities. We have opportunities, and we have people that we know at work, at home, family, extended family, communities. Help us to bear witness of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.